What's going on, guys? Adam Comer here with another episode of the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. And the Duke has played three games since I last recorded. They have, they have played Georgia Tech, Notre Dame, and St. John's. And while having a little bit of a struggle at times, has pretty much ended up with Duke having comfortable victories. So it's been, it's been pretty much good times in Kayville. I would say with uh, I would say tougher opponents up ahead. So I wanted to bring in Sean Crest um, from the North State Journal, covers Duke, covers the ACC, does a great job there. To kind of talk about Duke and what's going on there, a the little bit of the ACC, and then since we're recording this on Super Bowl Sunday, we were going to actually talk about uh, some Super Bowl related aspects, which may not actually be football, maybe more a little halftime related. So let's start out. I notice oddities. I have no idea why. My eyes are just kind of like drawn to them. So something like Yale and Brown opening up the Ivy League season, playing back to back. I found that weird. Uh, Taco Fall shooting 20. He's being he's like among the league leaders in uh, shooting percentage, 75 percent. Then he shoots 28 percent from the free throw line. So stuff like that. And like three of the five teams who have the highest percentage of their offense in transition are actually three of the worst teams in terms of points per possession in transition. Stuff like that. It's interesting. Cough, cough, North Carolina Um, and uh, Duke, in my experience watching college basketball, they might be the worst shooting but obviously elite team i've ever seen in terms of uh perimeter free throws and jumpers so stuff like that and especially mike buckmeyer he's the most statistically efficient player last season and uh so i want to find out what exactly has happened with them i want to grill you for some mike buckmeyer takes i don't want any blowback on that with fancy smanches small sample size takes so sean let me start out by asking you has there been anything you've seen um, with your eyes or stats, which have stuck out as interesting or odd related to Duke, ACC, or National College basketball? And does yesterday's NC State-Virginia Tech game deserve kind of a WTF category of its own? I mean, I, I, I want to know if NC State's stat broadcast um, account is always password protected or maybe they were just ashamed of making it public yesterday because if – anyone didn't see it or doesn't know what happened virginia tech won 47 to 24 and it was sean i just want to i want to hear what you have to say about that <laughs> um yeah speaking of odd things yeah that that game yesterday i was watching it on step broadcast and i thought the system was down because we were you know it started at the same time as as the duke game and uh, you know we were 28, 21, something like that, and their game was four to two. So <laughs> I just assumed that we'd stop getting the stat feed at some point. Um, it was just the craziest thing. I was looking at the end of the game yesterday. Uh, Duke has had a player score 24 or more points 21 times this season, and then the entire NC State team uh, managed to do that uh, <laughs> combined yesterday. So it was just a very strange performance. I think the lowest scoring. ACC game since the shot clock and and far before that. So yeah, it was just bizarre. Um, it, it's the type of thing where I, I kind of wanted to be there to see exactly what caused it, but it's also the type of game that I yeah I absolutely did not want to be at and have to sit through. So uh, I was happy to be at Duke instead of instead of watching that debacle uh, a few miles away. What do you think is weirder? Their 45 missed shots being two less than Virginia Tech's total points, or 
there are 45 missed shots, almost doubling their own points. Um, yeah, they're both both very strange. I mean, it's 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 rare that a team, you know, you, Virginia Tech didn't have their point guard. He's out injured. He was in a he was in a walking boot. And uh, you find that out. You find out they don't have their point guard, and they only put up 47 points. And you think it was a tough day for them, but they. You know, they they nearly doubled up their opponent and ran away with the game. So it was just, just I, 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 it'll be a long time before we have the words to describe that. That'll be like the Virginia Tech Wake Forest football game from a few years ago that went to overtime zero zero. It's just one of those, one of those ACC moments that we'll be talking about for a while. Uh, I, I remember I actually went to what might be the worst football game in the history of the world. It was uh, well, I, okay, you might have just named that, but. <laughs> It was 1993, I believe, the Redskins versus the Jets. It ended up 3 nothing Jets. And I think, like, the, the Jets crossed the 50-yard line once, and the Redskins never did. And it was just the most brutal thing I've ever watched in my life. So, yeah, I'll, I will never forget that. And I can't quite decide if I actually want to watch NC State Virginia Tech to see how it happened or if my eyes would just burn. So it's it's going to be interesting, but it, I mean, yes, yeah, statistically, that was just a wild, wild uh, thing to see. And it didn't seem like it was a slowdown game. I mean, it seemed like it had the normal number of of possessions. It was just, you know, it wasn't like a Virginia game where where you're going to expect low point totals. It was just, you know, they're playing at normal speed and and inept for some reason today. Um, and going back to your other point. Uh, NC State is always password protected uh, for their staff broadcast account. It's very, it's very strange. It seems like the the better a team is, the least likely they are to bother protecting their stats. Uh, you can watch a Kentucky game on staff broadcast. You can watch Duke, Carolina. But if somebody's playing at Pitt or NC State, then you, then you've got to know the password. So it's just it's very strange. I don't quite understand the logic of when to protect the stats or not. But yeah, NC State is one of those schools that. That always has their stats protected to make sure they don't fall into the wrong hands. Uh, it's disappointing. I thought they had just locked it up because they were ashamed. Okay, so before we get specifically to Duke, I do want to, want to uh, ask if you your opinion on this. I, this could be what might some consider a hot take. I don't think it is. I think it's pretty reasonable. Um, I'd move the Champions Classic to the first Tuesday after the Super Bowl. I remember Duke, North Carolina, and I might be wrong, but I think that used to be like right after the Super Bowl. So that was like a huge thing, kind of moving everyone forward who casually pays attention to college basketball and be like, this is what starts it. But now Duke, North Carolina is a little bit later, um, the first matchup. So I think, I mean, especially with the number of one and dones who are raw, Many are raw, and just the quality of the games and the fact that, like, last year, Duke had a couple of uh, regular season games before they played Michigan State in the uh, Champions Classic. This year, with the NCAA deciding to start it off, I mean, the the only previous games they had were uh, the exhibition, so that really doesn't get prepared. And, well, obviously, Duke looked just fine, (laughs) beating Kentucky by about 100. I mean, just watching Kentucky against a team like Kansas – uh, last week, they don't even resemble anything close to what they were in November. And I was saying at the time, Duke was getting too much credit for that victory, and Kentucky was getting too much blame for the loss. I think 
with teams that are that young, or just any teams, they progress, they develop over time, and the ratings are going to come no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, it's a cool thing to open up the season with the Champions Classic, but those ratings with the four teams, they're going to be sky high no matter what. So I think it would be really cool, like the first Tuesday after the Super Bowl, imagine just having those, like the Champions Classic then. What, what do you, how do you feel about that? I, I like the idea of of having some type of event at this point in the season. Um, I think that the SEC and the Big 12 last weekend's challenge, uh, I think that was perfectly timed. I think that's, you know, it's you don't want to have all conference games for, for three months leading into tournament season. Uh, back in the old days of the ACC before expansion, you know, you'd play everybody twice. You'd play them all once. Then you'd have some type of non-conference event, and then you'd play them all again. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and then obviously because of the way that schedules have gotten all uh, compli- complicated by all the expansion, they haven't been able to do that. Uh, but, yeah, I like the idea of having some type of whether you move the uh, the challenge with the Big Ten to this point. Um, because a lot of those games, it was a big win for Duke, but it's not going to get a lot of they're not going to get a lot of credit for that, uh, you know, when it comes to tournament seating time, because it was just so long ago. And so, like you said, so much has changed. So I think this is the point in the season where you need uh, a non-conference showdown like that, uh, just to just to make that one last one last point to the to the tournament committee. I think that the St. John's game was exciting for that reason. Um, you know, I, you like the ACC, but you don't want to see a steady diet of that the rest of the way. I, I like the idea of breaking that up with something, whether it's the championships classic or the, or the big 10 challenge. Yeah. And I was just thinking um, because some of the casual fans, like they'll just start watching college after uh, the super bowl. Those two, I mean, you can't get bigger than those four teams with Duke, Kansas, uh, Kentucky and Michigan state. So that would be a great way to kind of reel in a, in an audience and get them hooked because that is when hopefully you would expect uh, those teams more developed because, I mean, even besides the Duke-Kentucky blowout, I just remember watching that. I mean, the Michigan State-Kansas uh, game, it was close. It went down to the wire. But close doesn't always mean well played, and that was ugly. That was really right. ugly. So, so, and I think both teams are better at this point. And Kansas had overcome a lot, but let's uh, stick to uh, Duke right now. So, as always, the uh, many are calling – this group of potential at-large teams, um, the weakest in a long time, because that's what they call them every year. So looking at who Duke has played, it's interesting because, I mean, if you, if you look at 2018, this year, but this season, but 2018, the teams that they played, you, you would say definitely are in. The Auburn-Gonzaga back-to-back and Texas Tech, probably – Though not definitively, you would say, I mean, even though it's a bit of a drop-off, Yale, um, I think they're going to win the Ivy. I I do like Harvard, um, but uh, they're missing uh, uh, Seth Towns. He's one of their best players. And then questionable, I would say Indiana, who got a huge win yesterday at Michigan State, really unexpected. So, I mean, the Auburn, Gonzaga, Texas Tech, three definite, Yale probably, Indiana questionable. Then you you go to this season – Definitely, um, Virginia. I would say definitely, uh, probably Syracuse, probably FSU. I mean, FSU, it's tough to trust no matter what. And then questionable Clemson and questionable St. John's. I had, I had them all written down. I can't find them now, so I might be missing a team. But it's interesting because Duke – 
I mean, they are looking great right now. They, but they are moving ahead to play. I think uh, I have it listed as like six teams that I have definitively, I think, will be in um, on the ACC schedule. It's been a bit soft at first. I thought uh, some teams are going to be better than they were, like Clemson. Clemson hasn't looked too great. I think their best win is against Lipscomb, and their second uh, best win is against Pitt. So they have some work to do to uh, make it in. But uh, just in terms of considering who Duke has beaten, would you say – how much would you take out of their performances so far in terms of the quality of teams they've played against? Um, I mean, I think early in the non-conference season, like you said, they they had a, a pretty impressive run there. Uh, Kentucky through uh, maybe Indiana, um, especially the Auburn, Gonzaga, Indiana, you know, in within an eight-day period. I, I thought that was very impressive. Uh, it did soften uh, through no fault of their own, really, but yeah, it did soften, and they've had a, they've had a relatively soft ACC schedule, um, which is going to change in a hurry. Um, they have Virginia, Louisville, State, Carolina, and Syracuse, and then I think Virginia Tech after that, like all one right after the other. Um, so, yeah, so I think we'll see. <laughs> we may see a late-season slump, and, and everybody will be panicking as to why that is, but it may be just, you know, the step up in in quality of opponent uh, compared to what they've been playing now. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think that they've they've played a solid schedule. It's not quite maybe the strength that it's been in the past, but that's just because it's backloaded. I mean, it's going to end up being in the same place. Um, and I don't see that, you know, I don't see that they're doing this with mirrors. I don't think that the schedule has been weak enough that you can't draw any conclusions on the team at this point. Yeah. I think the tough thing with Duke um, right now is just the way they're built. So wing heavy uh, is if they're even more than a tiny bit more talented than their opponents, it could just become a bloodbath real quickly. That's the way they're built because um, they're just going to run up and down, and that's where the stats can get skewed. So when season stats are given, I think we have to be a little bit careful with that, and that's why I try to look game to game and separate into different teams because, uh, I mean, they can just – that they'll have these random outlier games. And then when you look at uh, – the best teams that they've played in 2019, I mean, in terms of outlier, how did they beat Virginia? It was the most outlier mid-range game ever. Duke has been garbage from mid-range the entire season, and that's not Duke-related. That's, I mean, that's mo- the most inefficient shot in college, in basketball, period. So you wouldn't expect teams to be efficient mid-range, but, I mean, you have R.J. Barrett. I think he was 9 of 10. He hasn't shot 50% on the mid-range um in any other game, I, I don't think. I mean, Zion was five of six. He ba- he barely ever even takes mid-range shots. So that game, well, they couldn't hit anything from deep as usual, and they they weren't great at the rim. The mid-range is what saved them there. Then um, I would say FSU, the outlier three-point shooting. I mean, you saw that. I mean, Notre Dame, that was just. I mean, if they're gonna hit ten of nineteen. It's done for any team they play. But uh, for FSU, I mean, besides that, they they hadn't shot, I think, over 37% versus any team since, like, their fourth game of the season. So that was a huge outlier there. You wouldn't expect uh, three-point shooting that well. And then uh, Q's, that was the outlier on the other end where they were shorthanded and tired. I mean, it's one thing if you know you're not going to have players, but to all of a sudden find out you don't have Cam Reddish 
um, before the game and then to lose Trey a couple minutes in. I think it was the unexpected nature of it. I, th- I think – and then you have six players play career highs or five players play career highs, including like Alex O'Connell who played the entire second half in overtime. Um, you, you have uh, Bolden play, playing huge minutes, Jack White playing huge minutes, guys you wouldn't expect, and they just their legs were dead. You could see it. R.J. Barrett was shooting 50%. A couple minutes in the second half, he ended up shooting like 20%, and they were just chucking up threes because they didn't have the legs anymore to really break down that zone. Um, so I think that was a little bit of an outlier on the other end. So it's interesting how the best teams they've played – it's always been something random, so it's really been tough to take it as a whole. So I'm really excited to see how they're gonna be, how they're gonna do against, as you said, I think a lot, um, a lot better teams ahead on their schedule. Yeah, I agree, and um, yeah, it does always seem to be, you know, something goes right to bail them out, other than other than that Syracuse game, um, in each of these games, and I think I think the Virginia one. I think that was a, a to a large extent game plan. I think that they worked on that shot, and that's you know they knew that's where they were going to be able to get the shots against Virginia, especially without Jones there to penetrate and you know get anything else. So I think that they, I think that was they devoted the week to to preparing for that, and, and you know you're going to hit the shots from this spot, and, and so I think that was maybe less fluky and more game plan than than the than the Florida State game, for example, where they just got red hot from three, and, and the Notre Dame game, same thing. Um, but yeah, it's just, yeah, they, they seem to be getting that three point shooting, uh, when they need it. And then it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's set to the back burner in the other games. Well, that would be, that would be pretty bold to actually plan for mid range, uh, efficiency because I mean, no matter how good you are, that's, that's tough to do unless actually you're Syracuse. Syracuse is like the most random team ever. They take so many mid range shots. I mean, a lot of people think Duke played bad defense in that game. They actually were great. I mean, once Trey um, left, I mean, this, the remainder of the first half was, was uh, pretty poor because they were adjusting. But they actually were great in the second half and overtime. I mean, if Tyus Battle is going to hit uh, 15-footers with a guy in his face constantly, I mean, that's that's the odd thing about Syracuse. That's what they do every year. They take more contested mid-range shots than any other team, and they hit them. And I can't quite understand it, but, hey, it is what it is. <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, just a little bit of the recent games. I mean, Georgia Tech, two of the worst perimeter shooting teams I've ever seen, and Duke was able to uh, take that game. They basically just changed it up, converting more offensive rebounds into points in the second half. Um, I think that was the big difference, and uh, I guess they sped up Georgia Tech a little bit with O'Connell when Bolden was, uh, I think he his foot was... Uh, Little little bit uh, giving giving him some uh, pain. Um, so it was nice to see O'Connell get big minutes. Notre Dame, I mean, that was the random outlier. Duke has been not just bad but atrocious against zone, and they were just locked in from the get go against Notre Dame. Uh, who it's it's kind of been a transition year for Notre Dame, and it's uh, I feel bad for the Fluger fan club. No no Rex. So uh, that was just kind of it was what it was. Um, and then. Um, the uh, St. St. John's game. And it's interesting. I mean, St. John's, they have actually, I think they've lost five straight to teams not named Creighton. So they're not exactly lading it up in their own sense. But uh, first I want to say, I asked you this on Twitter, and I didn't get direct response to this. Can it be considered a revenge game? 
because obviously St. John's beat Duke last year, but and the only guys who played in that game, uh, what is it? Uh, Bolden played ten minutes. I think uh, Jack White played eight, and Javin played two. So that's ten percent of the overall minutes. Can it be considered a revenge game? <laughs> Well, I'm sure that Coach K remembers it, and so I think that because of that, it could be considered a revenge game, just because I'm sure that he he let the team know that he did not want to lose to this team twice uh, twice in a row. I found it amazing. This was in St. John's Game Notes, and I tweeted this out yesterday. Uh, Duke has not lost to a non-conference team in back-to-back years in in 18 years now. Uh, it was it was 2000 and 2001 when they when they lost to Stanford in, in both of those years, and Duke has not lost to a non-conference team in back-to-back years since. Uh, and I, I'm sure that Coach K knew that, and I'm sure that he he did not want his team to to break that string. He did not want to break the home court losing string and he didn't want uh, pawns to light him up again. So I think that, I think that you saw that all of those were motivating uh, coach K and if coach K is motivated, then the team's going to be whether they played in that game or not. It's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, Duke doesn't really play that many teams actually back to back. And by the way, that damn uh, Casey Jacobson, um, he, he's responsible for some of the, uh, for some of that Stanford, uh, I think he hit like a game winner in one of those games. I don't know. I can't remember. I mean, they they play obviously St. John's right now. They they play back to back, and they played St. John's before. There was a couple year period where they didn't, but uh, they, they played Temple in some years. Um, I, I remember UCLA during the '90s. They played them in a couple back to backs. But you don't really actually see that besides, I mean, they used to play Davidson every year. I'm not quite sure what happened to that, but uh, you, you don't really see them playing many teams back to back. Do they have something scheduled for like, uh, I guess, next year, ni- 2019, 2020? Is there a non-conference game scheduled for two? Because I'm not sure if St. John's is scheduled to keep going. Yeah, I haven't seen one. I, I'm not, I haven't seen their full plans for the non-conference, obviously. But no, I, I haven't seen that St. John's is going to continue or not. I would have thought that, um, you know, one of the Champions Classic teams, I know they don't play them in back-to-back years, but with tournament games and with other made-for-TV games in December, uh, I would have thought that Kentucky or Kansas or Michigan State, they might have played them in back-to-back years over the last couple decades. So I think that would have been the best, not necessarily an actual scheduled, you know, home-and-home series, but one of those those made-for-TV opponents I thought could have caught them in back-to-back years. Yeah, with the Big Ten and the Champions Classic, it seems like – Tom Izzo's in a constant nightmare, never never being able to take out Coach K. So um, the other question I asked you on, on Twitter, they beat Texas Tech earlier this year. Tariq Owens scored 17 against Duke, uh, playing for um, St. John's last year. Is that Can that be considered appetizer revenge? I mean, even if it's like a cheap bar appetizer for Duke to beat Texas Tech with Tariq Owens? Absolutely. And again, I'm sure that the players were aware of that uh, before the game. I'm sure that K... <laughs> Kay knew that and, and made a note of him in the game plan as well. All right, good to know, good to know. I'll keep that in mind for later. All right, so, so Duke-St. John's, that reminded me a lot of Clemson, at least in the way that Marvin Clark and Elijah Thomas, in the way when they both picked up their second fouls about halfway through the first half in both games, you could feel the feel of the game changed drastically. And from then on, I mean, that's the thing about Duke. When they grab momentum, it's you can look at the strategy, you can look at the stats and everything. Bottom line, it's just tough to ever get it back. I mean, Clemson was slowing Duke down, and then 
with Thomas out, they weren't able to kind of grind into a half-court game and dump it inside, and Duke just started running on them, and that was just done deal. And St. John's, when they lost Clark, they lost the divert the, they lost the diversity of their offense, and they were doing a great job setting higher screens um, for Shamori Ponds, and I'd seen in a while, and it allowed Shamori Ponds to still be great and impact the game even without scoring because he was, I mean, Trey Jones was glued to him. So they were doing a great job there with the diversity, and then without it, they just. They couldn't hit anything. They couldn't buy a bucket. So you, you can look at all the stats you want, but it's it really nothing changed too drastically from first to second half or anything like that. And I mean, points off turnovers, second chance points. It was pretty even between the two teams. So I, I would say with, with that, it's just Duke is going to score no matter what you do. And I think it's just when when you really. Actually, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to get into exactly this Trey aspect. I want to I want to get into it a, a, a little bit later. But it, it just it had a, the game had a feeling of kind of inevitability. It was like a ticking time bomb for when Duke was going to go on a huge run. So even when Clark picked up the second foul, I think Duke was up 23-21 with like 11:30 left in the first half. I mean, St. John's was still in it. They were down, I think, 35-33, and it was even 49-39 with like 18 minutes left in the second half. But it's just, it felt like just a ticking time bomb. And sure enough, there comes the Duke 14-0 run, game over. So I, I think it's just, I mean, this, this the team is so talented. You just, you're just waiting for that big run. And I think that's something that's been missing from recent Duke teams. A lot just the ability to just, kind of clock you with that huge run. It also didn't help St. John's to miss their first seven shots of the second half and their last 10. But uh, so, it, I mean, the big run, I mean, that's what's so impressive about this team, their ability to get out and run, as, as well as what I said. I mean, in in my preseason pod, I, I said they're going to be a lot better than what people think on defense because of just the sheer athleticism of the wings and the fact that I will say what, what stuck out to me in the Canada trip was Jay Billis after the uh, after it ended after the last game he asked Zion like what what would you what what do you think is the most important thing you learned and he just said we need to talk on defense nonstop talk when we when we don't talk we're never going to be able to be the type of team we know we can be we have to talk as much as possible in order to reach our potential I mean that I'm kind of not exact quote but. Uh, uh, mostly what what uh, he was getting across, and I think that was huge. And that and th- and that made me think that like this is not going to be that typical one and done based team that struggles on defense. And sure enough, that's been their identity as much as anything this year, as well as transition. Um, yeah, I, I and I think the, the one thing you didn't mention that, that impressed me a lot about the, the St. John's game yesterday. Um, I mean, St. John's came out and just hit him in the mouth. St. John's came out with the intention of out-toughing them. And we haven't seen anyone try that, really, with Duke this year. I would say Syracuse was maybe the most most physical team we've seen uh, up until that point, um, where it was just, you know, hard fouls. The one they finally called, I think, was the second time that Reddish had been knocked down. Um, just like a, with it looked like it looked like people look when they're trying to flop. Only he went that way because he actually was hit. Uh, it was it was they were both violent hits. Uh, Williamson got knocked down. 
uh, inside, which we rarely see. Uh, so they were just there were hard fouls inside. Um, I exchanged with you on Twitter about Heron, where he uh, he tried to get into Williamson's head uh, in the first half uh, during an out of bounds play, where he was bodying him up, and, and the ref stepped in. And normally, when they do that, then each guy takes a step back, and 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 Heron didn't move. Heron went right back and put his forearms on on Williamson again. The ref had to step in and do it again. Um, got Williamson mad enough to charge uh, the next time he got the ball uh, against Heron. So I think that it was a tactic we haven't seen in, uh, this year. We've seen it with pretty much every other one-and-done Duke had. Uh, you know, teams would come out and decide they were going to knock Jabari Parker on his butt. Uh, they, they came out and decided they were going to, you know, body up the 2015 freshman. Uh, and the same thing with, uh, with Bagley and Carter last year. Uh, we saw that, and, and this year, I don't know whether they've been intimidated by Williamson's size or what it is, but we, we just haven't seen that in, until St. John's. And I thought it, it took Duke a little while to adjust to that, uh, but I think that they did, and that's that's in large part what we saw in the second half was they came out and they decided they weren't going to get bullied anymore. Yeah, I mean, Duke has, does have a tendency to be a little bit over-aggressive um, with their double teams at times. I don't mind that. I mean, they're trying to get those turnovers, but um, I haven't really seen them actually get beat on first opportunities inside since, since Gonzaga. I mean, that's how long it's been, and this Duke team – some wondered about how physical they were going to be inside and how much we would see Zion maybe play a small five. We've even seen Jack White play a small five at times. Um, I mean, Bolden I'll talk about in a bit. He's, in my opinion, probably been the most underrated um, player on Duke this year or underappreciated. Um, but I, I think, yeah, dude, Duke, they've shown the ability. I mean, yesterday was huge in just their ability to – never back down i mean yeah they're talented but if you haven't really been through it you never know i mean that i mean seeing them against gonzaga i mean when you're playing a team that that good you just don't know how they're going to react no matter how talented the team is or how talented they were in high school it's it's just tough to predict so and and i think duke also did a great job kind of feeding shimori ponds i mean once he had to be the focal point of their offense. He always is, but more, more focal scoring um, point. I, I think Trey, it's, he's so smart on defense. He really did a great job feeding Shamori Pons into other defenders with the correct angles. And just, I mean, Trey, I mean, one of the most absurd comments I saw on Twitter was uh, Jeff Goodman. Like, this isn't anything negative against him. It's just, he said that Trey Jones isn't getting enough respect or he he's not appreciated enough. And I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't know who doesn't feel that Trey Jones is one of, the, one of if not the best perimeter defenders in basketball. Like, I, we give a little too much attention, in my opinion, to these subjective awards. It's the same thing. Um, it's like Ben Swain, great guy, great reporter, but he's like R.J. Barrett's the most underrated player in the ACC. Because he'd been, he'd been racking up stats and he hadn't gotten any player of the week or freshman of the week awards. I mean, I would I, I don't think there's anyone who would consider rationally R.J. Barrett the most underrated player in the ACC. I mean, it's the same thing as like is Coach K the most underrated coach in the ACC because he hasn't won coach in the year since 2000. So I, th I think we might give uh, a little too much credence to these subjective awards. But Trey Jones, his defense, I think most. People who follow the game at this point know how vital he is. So with you seeing him um, D guys up up close, I mean, what is, what is your opinion? 
how, what have you seen with his game that you can describe from watching him close up? I mean, I, I felt like a Virginia fan yesterday because, you know, you're just watching and appreciating great defense and, and you don't, you know, normally you don't do that. Even when you know it's going on, you're still focused on, you know, who's going to score, what's going on on the offensive end. But just watching him, you know, accept the challenge of taking on Pons, knowing what Pons did to the team last year, uh, and just basically saying we're going to shut him down. He is not going to be the one to beat us scoring anyway. Um, and then just to watch those two go against each other, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I missed a lot of baskets just watching the two of them and the interaction between between the two of them. Because, yeah, if if Trey Jones decides you're not going to get by him, then you're not going to get by him. The only times, and you mentioned this a little bit with the with the help defense and everything, the only times that that Pons got by Jones in the first half were when Jones was willing to let him and had somebody there to pick him up, Barrett or somebody to pick him up, and and uh, that led to a lot of the turnovers actually. When Pons kind of thought at first that he was getting by him, and then had to meet somebody bigger and then prepared for him. Um, so no, I thought that was very impressive. And then he finally did start scoring in the second half when. They took the ball out of his hands. They had um, they had number five bringing the ball up against uh, against either Bolden or Williamson, uh, and Pons was off the ball, and that's where he got most of his points, at least in the early going in the second half, um, because St. John's had to decide to take the ball out of their point guard's hands, one of the best point guards in the nation, because Jones was just was just disrupting so much. So I think you know it's, it's a joy watching him play. Uh, it's a joy watching him go after loose balls, even if your heart's in the throat in your throat when you when he does it. But yeah, it's it's he's a lot of fun to watch uh, on defense. Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen many better than him at picking the ball from behind. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He almost allows the guy to get by at times just so he can kind of poke <laughs> it loose. It, it's it, I mean, that's a talent. It's un- indescribable. I, I think it is interesting how I mean FSU was able to get great switches on Duke with high screens um, and get Bolden on uh, the ball handler. Syracuse same thing and Bolden. I mean I think that those are the two games which he kind of I think he's been great the whole season last year too. Um, but uh, I think that's when he truly earned his stripes with K because you, you would think K is just going to take him out, put Javin in who might you might think could move his feet a little bit better, guard, guard out uh, deep on the three as well. Just, and he, Kay trusted Bolden to just leave him in there, and Bolden's done great. So it's going to be interesting to watch uh, St. John's again just to see how Trey was able to kind of stick with pawns despite the screens because, I mean, if FSU and Syracuse were able to get him off the ball handler, and, uh, I mean, Wake Forest – he was able to stick with Brandon Childress. I think that's what made a huge impact versus Wake Forest. So it's just interesting the strategies teams use. So it's going to be fun for, at least for me, as, as a weird basketball nerd, to watch back and just see how Trey was able to fight through the screens and stick with him because you're just used to Duke switching one through five. All right, so yeah. let, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Yeah, you mentioned the screens, uh, and it just goes back to St. John's kind of trying to intimidate them. Um Keita, uh, number zero, the guy that transferred from South Carolina, um, he was looking to lay Jones out. He was setting those backcourt screens. And normally when somebody sets a screen, you know, as you're coming up from the from the backcourt, it's just kind of as an obstacle where you're, you know, he's got to get around you and that gives the, the guy with the ball an, another step maybe. Uh, but no, he was he was setting them up late and right behind Jones. Like he was he was setting them with the intent of knocking Jones on his butt. And I think he succeeded once. Um, he caught him once, but you could just see that there were bad intentions with those screens. And yeah, Jones was 
Jones was able to cope with that as well. So yeah, the, the screens within the offense, but there were also, you know, they were they were shooting for his head uh, even in the backcourt as he was as he was harassing Pons coming up. So that was that was something to watch. That I don't know if that made it to the TV broadcast or not. If, if you could see that or if they were focusing elsewhere. Well, if, if some were able to see it, um, then maybe. But I wasn't. So that yeah, that's some great information. And I mean, physicality. That that's something I never even consider with Trey because I mean he gets in there to help with uh, with the defensive rebounding he'll he'll rebound the offensive glass too and I mean they right right there that's kind of Tyus brought that same physicality too so those dudes they're prepared they're prepared for a battle each time so you got Stones with Tyus and you got uh, the worst nickname anyone could give a player with me calling Trey Pebbles um, but uh, yeah Pe- Pebbles he's a tough little dude. Um, or not, not little, he's bigger than me. But, um, okay. So, the thing um, that I don't think enough are appreciating about Trey, it, I mean, I think it's ridiculous to call him underrated. But an aspect that he brings is, I think, the most important thing possible for Duke, besides just their ability to, they have such a high ceiling on defense, that automatically, in my opinion, gives them a higher NCAA tournament ceiling. But when you look at the steals... I think too much goes into that. Yes, it can help lead to transition. The, the blocks. I mean, I think they're number one in the country or at least top three in steal percentage and block percentage. So that helps. That helps them get out in transition. But it's pretty much anything helps. And, I mean, against Georgia Tech, they had a bunch of steals, but they actually only converted 12 steals in the 11 points. So it wasn't a big deal. And sometimes they get more steals, sometimes less. Um, with Trey getting so many in the first couple minutes versus Syracuse. I mean, if he never came back this season, he was going to go down as some sort of legend for what he did in those <laughs> couple minutes. And it go, it gets up, it goes up and down. I mean, he was there the first couple games of the ACC season. Duke's steal percentage sure wasn't real high then. And it's gone up and down since he's come back. What he does that I've seen, he is able to push off of anything and everything better than anybody I've seen I was trying to think of it, maybe since Jason Kitt. I mean, like Allen Iverson, he could push off anything. It was mostly for himself. I mean, Jason Kitt, he's the type who would just be able to somehow create transition out of nothing. That's why, I mean, off opponent scores, you see Duke shooting like five seconds off opponent scores. That's what Trey does. His anticipation, his vision. I did a whole podcast when he was about to come back versus Georgia Tech, so I don't want to get too into this myself, but I do want your opinion. Just his ability to create off of anything when you wouldn't expect it to be typical transition. I think that's the most underappreciated aspect of his game and why Duke has been able to speed up, I believe, every single team except for Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh is like the one team they somehow were not able to speed up. I think they kind of, they were coming off that three-game stretch of just really emotional highs. And then Pittsburgh, they kind of, in the second half, they lost a little bit of that intensity. That might have affected things. But uh, yeah, I mean, they've sped up every team without relying on the turnovers and just the typical fast break opportunities, that's what Trey provides. Yeah, I mean, you've seen a lot more long, you know, downcourt passes this year than, than you've seen w- with most teams, including most Duke teams. Um, and that's that's a lot to do with Trey, as you said. It's also a lot to do with any as with any quarterback, with his receivers. Um, he's got a couple of guys who can catch those passes and, and do it in stride and, and even if they, even if it's a bad pass, they can catch it and manage to adjust and still dunk it. Uh, you know, while they're 
while, while they're falling out of bounds. So I think Barrett and Williamson also have a lot to do. How with dare you? Trey Jones never throws bad passes. <laughs> so, but they, uh, you know, well, I mean, it could even be a good pass. And, you know, it's still tough to receive that, keep going and, and complete that, even, even receiving a good pass. So that, that may be true that he doesn't throw a bad pass, but you can still see you still see a lot of good passes fumbled out of bounds a lot of times. They're all, and they're I, I they're all perfect, been, John. They're all perfect. <laughs> so, so they've been, uh, yeah, so they, they've been able to convert those as well. So I think it's both ends uh, are contributing to that to that phenomenon. But I agree. We're seeing that a lot more than we normally do. Okay, Zinefest 2019. And here comes the uh, hard-hitting journalism right here. All right, so you see uh, Mike Buckmeyer constantly sitting next to Zion. You see, you see with the interviews, the post-game interviews, you see Zion looking to Buckmeyer before he answers. I'm warning it. Is Mike Buckmeyer Zion's bodyguard, his agent, or just his personal life um, advice giver, um, the guru? What, what is – I think Mike Buckmeyer might be responsible for a lot of Zion's success. Am I, am I going a little too far with, with that uh, warm, lukewarm take? <laughs> I started laughing as soon as you mentioned this. We none of us have any idea what's going on with Zion and Buckmeyer. It's not like their lockers are next to each other. Buckmeyer's is on the other side of the locker room. He makes the trip over for for Zion's interviews to 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 do this. We haven't gotten a straight answer from either of them as to as to why they're doing. It's like a ventriloquist act as to why they're doing this buddy comedy. Um, after each game, it's it's hilarious, but yeah, we're not sure what's going on. I mean, Kay always talks about how Zion just loves his teammates and wants to be part of the team, and it could be that he's, you know, just trying to trying to show that he's a regular guy and doesn't wanna doesn't wanna, you know, have any resentment or anything in the locker room. So he's bringing along bringing along the walk on for part of the journey. But yeah, I've, <laughs> we're lost for an answer as to what exactly is going on in that whole show. I, I love it because, I mean, I do a lot of, like, in-depth analysis on, on Dukes. Um, so it's been fun. Like, Nick Pagliuca, if you, if you like, look up uh, Nick Pagliuca on Twitter or even the hashtag uh, Pags for, play, for POY, I mean, I would say 90% of anything Nick Pagliuca related was probably written by me um, in uh, various times. And then when once he graduated, I had to find my next walk-on to adopt it was it was Buckmeyer from the get go. He had me at hello. So and and then so I was constantly tweeting about him anyway. And then he ended up Duke statistically best player last year. Again, don't talk to me about small sample size. Um, I, I mean, it was even better. And then for him to kind of, I mean, to, yeah, as you said, the the, the weird um, thing with Zion. I I mean, it's just fantastic. It's yeah, he's he's a lot of fun. It's it's unfortunate that we don't get a chance to talk to him more. You know, there's just you, you get such limited time with the team and you've got to you've got to get to the contributors. But, yeah, no, he's he's a fun guy to talk to. Um, he's a smart guy. I mean, he's a he's a legit. You isn't know, he, he's, isn't he's he in taking, med school or something? Wait, not yeah, me. he's taking yeah. like, yeah, high level biology courses and things like that. Yeah, he's he's something else. And he's he's the first one out on the floor before games. And, you know, he's it's the, the, all the cliches like he's the first one out there. And while everybody's shooting, he's working on dribbling drills and things like that. He's treating it as practice. And, yeah, it's just, yeah. Oh, he... Sean, that warms my heart. That warms my heart. Because, I mean, <laughs> I heard last year that he he missed a game because he had uh, some sort of science lab. And all I could think of was how selfish he was and how he's not, he's not for the team. He's all about self. And I was just, I mean, 
it, strip him of the scholarship if, if he has one. I'm not even sure if he has one as a walk-on. But, it, I mean, force him to pay double for school. It's just selfish. So <laughs> it's nice to see he's improved in terms of his team building, his interest in actually not being a selfish player this season. Yes, yeah, he's definitely not all me first anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, I mean, Zion, he, he's on track to set – the single season records for, I mean, play, the per player efficiency rating, win shares, box plus minus, is that, that stat is just what shows everything. I mean, he's absurd. He, he's absolutely shooting like 76% from inside the arc in uh, overall, like 80% ACC play. It's so easy. I had to, I actually, I'm having to watch myself to make sure I don't start taking him for granted because it's just it's so easy just to see him almost make it look so easy and be like, that's just how it is with him. Let's concentrate on the other players. But I mean, he's, he's, he's incredible. But, um, but before the specifics, if I said the highest per single season per ever on basketball reference, I think they've kept track of it since the 85, 86 season. It's held by a player who played for a school in North Carolina. Off the radar in 2015-2016. Do you know who it is? It's really weird. I'll be honest. I follow uh, College Plea closely. I, I hadn't heard of him. I mean, I'm sure many had. So I'm wondering just since you cover, it's possible. I mean, I, I would guess Chris Clemens. He was, what, a freshman that year. Um, but I, I, yeah, I would guess Chris Clemens of Campbell. It is John Brown from High Point. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was never even on my radar. So good, good for him. I mean, right now he holds the the highest single season per um, in college basketball history. So random stats, but uh, so Zion's on track to just set everything. Um, what's it been like to just see the reaction to him and um, from fans? What's your reaction to him? Because I mean, so it's kind of just jaw dropping. It is, and it's you know he's impressing. It's kind of like the dream team from 1992 where he's, you know, the guys on the court playing against him are impressed by him. And it's rare that you see that. I know that, everyone that, was watching Christian Leitner on that team being like, that is that is the most talented guy. <laughs> that, and I mean, that's that's why it was so rare to see what St. John's did, because they treated him like a basketball player. And you haven't seen that this year for the most part. And even, you know, when he did get knocked down in the first half yesterday, you know, there was just this kind of gasp among everybody that how can. You know, don't you know how promising he is? How can you risk hurting him like that? Well, he's the opponent. That, that's what you do. You play him tough. And it's just, yeah, you, you don't see that. They're not they're not turning to the sideline and asking someone to take photos of them guarding him. But it's, you know, just a little bit below that as far as as far as everyone watching him. Um, yeah, because he is. He's just, you know, he doesn't miss. It, it, they talk about the dunks, but, you know, he doesn't miss when he shoots. And it's, you know, he's been knocked off balance. He's been he's gotten. You know, the ball at weird angles, he's gotten hit on the way up, and he just doesn't miss. Um, also, the, I think unheralded is his shooting on the way down. Like, you know, he's when he's playing against a bigger guy and he goes up, and then he almost travels. It's almost an up and down, and he releases that ball at the last second, uh, and it goes in. It's, it's something that I think Antoine Jameson is the best person I saw do that in the ACC before him. Um, and it's something that just doesn't get mentioned because there's so many other things on the list that he's good at. Um, that it's just something that doesn't make the radar. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of projections and uh, 
kind of big boards for college to pro in terms of draft uh, stuff. I, I, I avoid high school. I mean, I pretty much, I rarely watch anything from these, from these guys much in high school. I mean, I remember watching a bit of Kyrie and just being like, well, we definitely know he's going to be a superstar. I mean, I mean, Justice Winslow, I saw and just his physicality. I knew, um, and Frank Jackson a bit, but usually I just stay away because it's so tough to tell. And Zion in high school, he just wasn't playing against anyone who even forced him to show a lot of these uh, skills. They're not forced, but I mean, he's just showing so much more than any random mixtape would allow. I mean, I think we're, we're all seeing his and his basketball IQ, his anticipation, especially on the, uh, the rebounding. I mean, his instincts rebounding for where that ball is going to go, especially on the offensive glass. It's almost like Rodman esque at times. Um, and his agility. I think that's the thing. Cause you look at his size and you wouldn't expect him to be that agile, especially on the driver and transition on the move. It, it, it's it's remarkable. So some are saying, oh, he needs to prove he can shoot uh, better per- from the perimeter. He is starting to get better, but I mean, it's kind of like the I'm still I, I'm still never sure how to say it's either Giannis or Giannis and Kumpo for the NBA. If you can score at the rim, with I mean, why wouldn't you? Do that. It's the most efficient shot. You don't need to be the Warriors. So, I mean, if Zion can get to the rim and score all the time, I don't know how you hold that against him. And he's just showing he is so much as a basketball player that I'm not sure many expected who just only watched him in high school. Yeah, he did. He didn't do the thing that a lot of the high school stars do where you transfer to the bigger school to you know showcase yourself. He stayed where he was and he got criticized for that, like you said. Um, because he didn't play that high level of competition. And so, of course, he looks this good. Uh, and, you know, he, he got downgraded, I think, in the minds of a lot of people because of that. Um, but now, I mean, yeah, he's definitely shown that he's he's the complete package. Um, and I think he, he shoots well enough from the outside to keep an NBA defender honest. Like, he'll get better at it, but I think he's already good enough that um, he doesn't have to just stay at the rim. I think he can hit that mid-range hot shot out to three-pointer um, well enough to – you know, to keep a defense honest. So I, I think he's good there as well. And he can handle the ball. He can, his agility, like you said, you know, usually with big guys like that, if, if they don't get the pass cleanly, uh, they're not going to get a shot off. And he's excelled at that, you know, with his up and under moves and things like that, shooting while falling out of bounds. He's, you know, he's very impressive that way as well. He's added to his scoring a lot just by, you know, being able to to pivot and, and, and do things while off balance. Okay. Um, so, I don't, I don't want to get too in-depth on um, each individual player, but I'll quickly uh, um, give a thought, and then you can just uh, respond after for just kind of the rest of the guys, which isn't taking away from anyone. It's just I've talked about them a lot on my on my individual podcast. I'm planning on a whole kind of Marquis uh, Bolden appreciation vibe coming up. I mean, <laughs> he's been so good, and... I still don't think like people hold it against him that he wasn't able to start over Marvin Bagley and Wendell Wendell Carter last season, which is one of the most absurd things ever. I mean, he was, I believe, second in win shares on the team in conference play, which he got more minutes when when Bagley was out for a couple games. And I mean, especially since zone is not what he fits best in. I thought he was great last year. I don't know how people held it against him that. He didn't get more minutes because he was playing behind two top 10 or top seven draft picks. I thought he was great last year. And now with more time, we're seeing just how 
just how important he is on defense and how great his footwork is. And just, I don't think it's that he didn't, I don't know. I would just never even think to call him a bust based on some subjective ranking in high school. He was sick and injured um, at times in his freshman year. So that was just a wipeout. Um, But uh, then Cam Reddish, he, for somebody who's in all likelihood going through one of the worst shooting slumps of his career. I mean, he was four for 10 from deep yesterday, so that's better. But I mean, he's been struggling. I would say his effort on both ends and the way he can possibly positively impact the game just with his passing, with his rebounding and his defense. I mean, he is a very aggressive defender. It's gotten him in foul trouble a couple times on offense. He turned the ball over a little too much at times. I just think he has kind of one speed right now. I always say he needs to learn how to diversify like uh, Wu-Tang Financial, if you know that reference. Um, (laughs) But once he does, I mean, yeah, he's super talented. Everyone knows it. Um, I think he's done a great job still making positive contributions, even when not hitting shots. Um, I mean, R.J. Barrett, he his game is expanding. People, many think of him just as a scorer. He's averaged almost uh, 10 rebounds and four assists the last couple games, last like six games. I think he's gotten two steals in three out of the last four games. He He's doing much more than shooting. He needs to keep attacking and work on that free throw rate. So, um, I, I, but I think he's, his game is really developing to make plays for others and not just himself. Um, and then besides that, I mean, Jack White, yeah, I mean, it's, it was out of his hands, obviously, but I mean, credit to him for just being good with the mentality of going from playing like 40 minutes a game, 35, 40 minutes to now all of a sudden back to the, to a bench role, not knowing how many minutes you're going to get each game. Javon Delorier, I'm hoping for him to not, his foul rate not to be in kind of the uh, WTF range. If he can prove that, he can make, he can positively contribute to Duke. I mean, O'Connell with bigger minutes against Georgia Tech, he showed what he can do. The decision-making, the defense, that's something you'd worry still about trust with K. But I think that's pretty much, um, with, with all the others, how it is at this point, at least from what I see. Jordan Goldwire, he was 0-15 from deep entering yesterday. He hit one. The drought is over. So uh, sum, sum that up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, is there is there anything you'd like to add about any specific players? Um, I've also been impressed with Bolden. You mentioned him. Um, he, I feel like he's – He's grown into his size, if that makes sense, where he, you know, it's freshman year and part of it was the injuries, part of it was confidence, but he was just kind of plodding and mechanical out there. And he's, he's grown into his size where it's not, he's now using it. It's not getting in his way. He's using it to his advantage, both on the defensive end and on offense. Um, he had that one, it would have been a Grant Hill type dunk if he had made it. It went in, I was an alley-oop and yeah, he kind of rattled it in. Um, but yeah, he was able to reach that ball and, and almost dunk it. Um, and, you know, that's an example of him using his size to his advantage, which we didn't see. Um, we didn't see the last two years. But I think he came in you know, he came in with Giles and Tatum. And so everybody is just expecting him to eventually, you know, be Tatum. He's expecting him to, to produce at that level. Um, and he's he's been more of a classic college player where he's, you know, he's going to be four years and develop into a, a solid player. Uh, key contributor um, this year and, and as a senior next year. So, um, no, I've been very impressed with him. Um, <clears throat> as far as the other guys, uh, Barrett is uh, – you mentioned his uh, his rebounding. He had 14 yesterday. Yeah, he's definitely um, 
I think he's taking a lot of the wear and tear off Williamson. They're, they're taking Zion away from the basket a little bit more, and so he doesn't take those shots. Uh, so he'll be fresh throughout the year. You're not seeing Zion's rebounding numbers quite as high as I think people expected. Uh, and I think that's by choice. I think they're saving him for later in the year uh, and having Barrett do some of that dirty work now. Uh, he also had four assists yesterday. He's um, He's been flirting with a triple-double a couple of times uh, recently. So, yeah, I think I think he's <clears> – <throat> I don't know if I would say he was underrated, but he's definitely contributing in a lot more areas than just shooting and scoring. Uh, and Reddish, until Williamson had five steals yesterday, Reddish was leading the teams in, team in steals. Um, he was red hot at the beginning of the game yesterday, scoring those 13 quick points. And then, like you said, he, he's finding ways to contribute when the sh- shot stops falling. And you saw that in a microcosm in the game yesterday where he was red hot at first and then went out and, you know, did some rebounding, did some, some passing, played some defense. Um and only scored three more points the rest of the way. So, yeah, I, I would agree with your takes on most of those guys, yeah. Okay. All right. Last uh, thing about Duke, then we'll get to the important stuff for Super Bowl randomness. All right. So if you're going to have worries, and also another thing with uh, taking a little bit of the pressure off Zion's rebounding, I think that's another thing you can add for Trey Jones. He's not afraid to get in there. Same thing with Jack White, the, uh, the, best, the best Duke Aussie since Kyrie Irving. I said it. All right. Um... So the worries, I mean, obviously, the shooting. I mean, the Notre Dame, I mean, I think they, they actually started out 5 for 7 yesterday against St. John's. So combined with 10 of 19, they were like 15 for 26. And it was just, watch out, Warriors. And sure enough, that, that fell off. I think they hit like one out of their last like 15 or something. So, yeah, I mean, the shooting, Duke is really, I mean, as I said at the beginning with the random weird stats, they're the most obviously elite team that's that's a horrific shooting team i mean comparisons maybe 2013 louisville uh, 2000 i think 17 north carolina i mean they weren't great shooting teams but they also found more diverse ways to score in the half court i mean duke settles for jumpers so often and that's when that's why you'd worry about Duke, if it's going to be a close game with the free throw shooting, and why it's so important as a kind of going back to what Trey can do in just getting more opportunities for Duke in transition, and then Duke, you wouldn't expect it, but kind of bringing up North Carolina again, they were such a great offensive rebounding team um, last year or the year before when they were even undersized because they were just so aggressive going for those rebounds. That's Duke is really great at offensive rebounding this year, and it just gives them more chances. So whether it comes in transition or, or on the glass, they just need as many chances as possible because they're all, their half-court offense is just awful. There's really no other way to put it. It's just a lot of it is just giving the ball to a guy and saying, go get buckets. Obviously, dump, dumping it in, inside the Zion helps. But, uh, yeah, it's really not very creative. So, Again, it's just the more opportunities, the better. So that's if when a team forces them in half-court offense, I mean, then you, you're going to have to hope for a, a Virginia type of game where they're hitting absurd percentages from mid-range. Um, but hey, I mean, Duke hasn't been stopped on offense yet, so it's easy to say, well, if a team can do this, then Duke will. They won't be able to do this. I mean, Duke has been able to be effective offensively, no matter what teams do. So um, I would say the late free throw shooting. 
That might be my biggest concern. Trey missed a one-on-one against FSU. Zion missed a potential game winner against Syracuse from the line. And Barrett, I think in a couple games, he's missed uh, some late free throws. He was even three of seven yesterday. I'm more focused on late game because, I mean, they're not good overall. But late game is when it's going to matter most, obviously. So would you consider that a, a possible concern, the late game free throws? Yeah, and they play a style of game where they're going to be going to the line a lot late in games, especially close games, especially in tournament time. Like that's mm-hmm. where they're going to pull away in those tournament games is, is at the free throw line. So I think that, uh, yeah, struggling at the line like Barrett did yesterday and like some of the other key ones that, that you've mentioned throughout the year, that's going to you know allow a team to to stick around, to hang around when when Duke could potentially put them away. So I think that that's I would agree that that's a major area of concern, uh, half court and and especially against the zone. I think that's an area of concern when you've got a, you know, that that's going to be the recipe if they get upset, which, which I don't think is going to happen, but if they did, it would be a, you know, an undermanned team who decides to go to a zone early and do make some of the decisions like they did against Syracuse against that zone. Uh, and, and yeah, I wouldn't call it panic necessarily, but just not good decision-making uh, when things aren't falling for them. Yeah. I mean, and, ha- and not having reddish that game really hurt. Um, against the zone and just without the tired legs i mean syracuse just totally um sunk down against zion so they prevented zion from getting anything where you could where he could break down the zone and they were just leaving duke players wide open so i I mean it was almost daring duke to shoot and hey if you have no legs and that was after traveling from fsu short rest i mean i'm not trying to make excuses it's just information that i think is worth adding um they were they were coming off fsu big big game and losing two of their most important players including their two most aggressive players on defense who can create turnovers leading to transition i mean and then the syracuse zone is just it's tough no matter what i mean that's why syracuse was eight is has been able to make some ncaa tournament runs because if you haven't seen that two three zone it's 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 tough. It's it's tough, and especially when you have short time to prepare. All right. So, all right. If you came if you came for the Duke, that pretty much sums up a lot of the Duke conversation. Now let's get to the good stuff, though. Um. So w- one serious, and then the rest nonsense. All right. So first serious. Full. I mean, for full disclosure, the Super Bowl is going to be the first full football game I've watched since last year's Super Bowl. So I can't offer too much on Tony Romo, but I actually did turn on Pat's Chiefs starting at the beginning of the second half. And the reaction to him, from what I've seen, it's, it's fascinating. You have half, half of everyone calling him like a prophet. Then you have the other half saying any person who played, any ex-player or coach would be able to do what, what he's doing and be able to kind of tell what's going to happen ahead of time. So... I, I'm, it just makes me think, basketball-related, I've long wanted more actual analysis um, written and on broadcasts from everything. I, I think a, there's a lot of narrative stuff, a lot of features, and that's great. I love that. I think we are a little – we're coming up short sometimes in the actual basketball analysis, but it's supply and demand. People have to want it. So in terms of – Watching these games and what's written, do people want to actually know what's going on? I mean, Billis actually called a couple plays. There was Louisville versus someone earlier this year, and he and he broke down the actual set 
and I loved it. I wanted more of it. Doug, Doug Gottlieb, while I have opinions on him non-basketball related, I think as a an actual color commentator, he's fantastic just because of the way he'll actually break down plays. And, I mean, some, they like the Dick Vitells, the Bill Waltons, the Dan Dockich, who have their own um, adventure going on during the games. But I actually like real analysis. So I'm wondering why you feel this might not occur more with college basketball. Well, I'm right with you where I want to see, whether it's basketball, football, or whatever, I want to see more analysis. I mean, that's, that's why these guys got hired. Because they have that insight. They didn't get hired because of their, their on-camera stick or whatever. They got hired to give us the behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. And we don't get that anywhere near as much as we should. Um, yeah, I mean, you have like John Gruden reason. just saying he loves everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, the only reason I can think of is we're, we're in a minority. Um, that we, you know, most people don't want to see that. And I think if you look on Twitter, you know, the, the people that are getting the the people that are, that are generating the commentary are the Bill Waltons and, and the Dick Vitales for what they say. Um, so people don't seem to have the appetite to, to have things broken down that way for them. But yeah, like I, I love watching Romo and I feel like this is what everyone should be doing. I don't think he's a prophet. I think that most former players and coaches can do that. They just choose not to for whatever reason. And that's very frustrating to me. But again, I don't think that most people feel that way. Um, I know there's a story about, Dean Smith, where he was in some relatively public area, I think it was like at an ACC tournament or something, there was a bunch of like reporters and coaches in a room watching a game and it was late in the game and there was going to be an inbounds pass and everybody lined up and Dean stood up, turned his back to the TV and announced what was going to happen, what the play was going to be, who was going to shoot and whether it was going to work and he was, he was entirely correct. So I, I think that most coaches can do that. I think that they can look at what's going on and see and, and be able to predict that. It's just that for whatever reason, the networks have decided that's not what people want to see. And so they're they're frowned upon when they do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it really does come down to supply and demand. If it's not demanded, then, I mean, I, it's, it's going to sound mean, but it's almost like, yeah, uh, fans are going to be treated like they're stupid. They're going to be treated like it's just narrative-based. Team A won because they wanted it more. And, I mean, yeah, if they if the stats show they got a bunch more rebounds, that makes it easy to say they out-rebounded the other team. They were tough. But I think it's just come down to the what rather than the how and the why. And especially nationally, it's just – I think a lot of coverage, it's just very thinned out. And it's just everyone is able to say one aspect about a team and then a couple cliches instead of really breaking down a team. And that's what I want, the how and the why. But, yeah, I mean, as you said, it's it's got to be demanded. And that's why somebody like if uh, – I mean, I've shouted him out a bunch of times. I'm hoping to get him on the pod um, to give some uh, – analysis coming up for these tough games jordan sperber anyone who does not know jordan sperber he was a uh, video oh, i'm going to say the name of video uh analyst no video he makes he makes the videos for <clears throat> well whatever he, uh, for i think he was like new mexico state but either way he's done fantastic x's and o play-based breakdowns i mean the stuff he came up with with uh, duke uva fantastic and i'm really interested to see how he expects these teams to uh kind of um strategize for the upcoming matchup he's fantastic 
And I mean, a, a publication like The Athletic, I'd love just hire him, have him go wild and just see if people care. I think it's just if it I'd like to see it available as an option, even if it's a small minority. And who knows? Maybe it can grow. I think you, it's worth giving it a chance, at least in my opinion, because The Athletic, which I had such high hopes for. And I am not putting any blame on the writers. I think it's, again, supply and demand. I think they've written like five articles about Duke. Four of them, four of them have been basically puff pieces on how the players like each other. And the other one was written after Syracuse. I mean, after Duke had already been horrific, horrific shooting the ball for like three months, two months. And it was blatantly obvious. There was an article written after Syracuse saying they had trouble shooting the ball. Syracuse, the ultimate outlier game in terms of just – Everything that went into it, short-handed, short rest, like zone, overtime, guys playing more minutes than they ever had, they used that game to prove that Duke wasn't a good <laughs> shooting team. I'm just like, I, this kind of proves you guys haven't been paying any attention. And I, it's, not, it's not simply, it's not an attack on the athletic. It's not an attack on any of the writers. It's just, again, supply and demand. To me, it's just, I hope it improves in the future, but if there's not a demand, sadly, I don't know. All right, um, so I, I, um, in terms of what I said earlier about uh, random things, I was watching Baylor yesterday. Here's my ultimate nightmare, and I want to know if you have an ultimate college basketball nightmare. Baylor at Oregon. And Baylor – let me see. I actually uh, – here we go. Baylor wearing their neon crack glow stick jerseys at Oregon wearing the electric green glow-in-the-dark jerseys on a court designed to look like a fir tree forest. And honestly, I didn't even know the Timberwolves in the NBA. They actually have their own awful, awful jersey as well, which is kind of like that neon whatever. Somehow you have to throw them in too. But like, what are teams doing? Like, I, I, who wants to watch that? I, I mean, if if the um, if a G League team was wearing pink jerseys because it's for um, so something uh, women related, then the, the by all means, absolutely. I don't mean this in any anti-way against that. But, I mean, I, I was like, Gary Trent scored like four, I think he scored like 49 the other day. And I watched it, and it was just blinding pink jerseys everywhere. And I'm like, I can't even take this. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, again, if those are for um, a, a female cause, women's cause, then by all means, I'm an, I just, I'm an idiot and don't even worry about what I'm saying. But, um, yeah, I mean, these some of these jerseys are going a little too far. Some of these court designs are going a little too far. That's my uh, burning hot take. Yeah, I, I, I cover a lot of minor league baseball, so I think I'm more immune to the ugly jersey problem. <laughs> yeah. um, but ugly courts do get me. I mean, and they, they don't even have to be, like, gaudy or tacky to be ugly. I was watching the game at Georgia Tech the other day. And they've got, you know, they're the yellow jackets, but there's no yellow on their court. It's all this mucus green. I'm like, what are, what are they doing? Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And that, that, that bothers me, I think, more than, than ugly jerseys do is an, is an ugly court because that's where you're focusing the entire time. So um, there's obviously a lot of, I don't even know if politics is the right word because um, I think politics is used to describe just anything that somebody doesn't agree with. Because uh, at this point, and don't worry, I'm not roping you into any of that. Yeah, <laughs> so anyway, I don't want to head down that road. But with the Super Bowl halftime show, even that something that innocent be becoming um, a source of, I guess, uh, I, I mean, some sort of. I mean, when you're asking Maroon Five about random things like 
Anyway, so if if you if if you're gonna choose not if you're gonna choose an alternative to the Super Bowl halftime instead of the puppy bowl or a kitten whatever it is, um, I think we should workshop some possible alternatives, which should be considered by <laughs> networks or live Twitter or whatever else the kids are into these days. Get off my lawn. So. I have some ideas, and feel free to interrupt me and and incorporate your own and uh, give me some feedback on these. Um, so, uh, how long is the Super Bowl halftime? Was that like twenty minutes? Is three hours? Uh, it's I think it's like twenty to twenty-five minutes. Yeah. Okay. So one thing is just listing top fives and top tens, and basically that's enough to get people interested, no matter what. If you just put lists of top fives and top tens, it was the funniest thing. Um, this this band uh, let's see this uh, the sidekicks um, <laughs> when everyone was doing end of the year albums uh, music albums in December they they came out with a list here's my official uh, AOTY list apples of the year and they listed their top apples and it was, and, and the reaction to it was amazing like it got so many reactions of course I had to add my take of they left out sweet tango which is could be t- could be top could be bottom either way that's an intense apple but I feel like that was that deserved to be mentioned at least I was furious about that I was I was mad online so uh, I, I think just listing top fives and top tens is enough to entertain the ADD crowd as long as it keeps switching um, eating competitions I sent you, I sent you an article from written in 2015 from the man the myth the legend Shane Ryan who actually was one of the I wrote for his blog. I wrote a couple articles for his blog. He's awesome. But um, he, he wrote introductions for uh, for eating competitions. That was some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen. So I think if you just – I mean with, with everyone gorging on food anyway, I think eating competitions, who wouldn't want to see like how much cheesecake somebody could eat? I, I think that will entertain people. So uh, <laughs> And uh, I guess every two I'll, I'll ask for your feedback. What do you think of top fives and top tens in eating competitions? Which – which would you prioritize of those? I would say the eating competitions. I want to see like regular NFL players in the eating competition. I want to see how many chicken wings Cam could put down or something like that. Like I don't want to see the professionals. I want to see like NFL personalities going through the eating competitions, I think. Okay. So, then, all right. Uh, number three, the Ocho. Basically just keep switching back and forth between random stuff you'd You'd expect to see on ESPN, the Ocho, invented obviously in dodgeball. Um, next, mini 30 for 30s, like five-minute versions, like uh, five minutes of one, then a couple-minute break, five minutes and a couple-minute break. Um, so you could have stuff like this interesting and may not have the highs and the lows that are typical of 30 for 30s. I mean, that's why like some of the, some really popular bands never got behind the music because they didn't do enough drugs or something. There, was, there wasn't enough like <laughs> ups and downs, um, which is funny. But uh, stuff like that, like Chris Webber, free throws. I think this is the least talked about thing in sports. It's just kind of amazing. He was horrible for, for like all college and then – first like five to ten years of his career he was and he bottomed out at 45 percent the next season he shot 75 percent from the line this is a lot of free throws and he never really struggled again i mean i think there was like one season but he pretty much remained at least pretty good the rest, and nobody's actually asked him from what i can find i have searched the internet nobody's <laughs> ever asked him like what changed because you see so many big men struggling from the line chris weber improved 30 percent shooting tons of free throws and i don't know how it happened and i don't understand why no one else cares then the like you could have something muggsy bogues 
again, not the ups and downs, but hey, I think he deserves shine. You could have someone on like bench mobs, work done. So, uh, all right, the Ocho and 30 for 30s, top fives, top tens, and eating competitions. What, what, <laughs> so what, what would you uh, have so far? Yeah, I would stick with eating for first. I like the idea of 30 for 30s. Um, it's a little similar to what they do, you know, what they'll do today during their nine hours of pregame, I think, where they have a lot of those like featurey type things. But those are more, you know, yeah, those are more feature pieces than, than I think a full like exploration of the history. So I, I like the idea of the of the 30 for 30. I, I like that as my number two, I think. OK, then we have uh, random movie TVs, random movie or TV scenes from random cult movies and TV shows. Like I would just like to see five minutes of like Bubba Hotep randomly come on the screen. Everyone's like, what in the world is that? Anyone who doesn't know Bubba Hotep is missing out on life. Um, you but like uh, random scenes from weird comedies. I mean, Dude, where's my car? Is one of the worst movies ever made. But the dude's sweet scene is enough. I mean, Hot Rod is the greatest comedy ever made. The the cool beans scene. I mean, just having it like having various scenes just pop up. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You could just have the uh, that scrolling coming down saying like, whoever made the quote has been sacked. That whoever replaced the person um, who made the quote has been sacked then it just keeps going on and on and it's i mean that movie is just fantastic um so is that then local commercials local commercials are some of the greatest things ever um, i saw one the other day by roller kingdom in reno nevada and it is the craziest thing if you haven't seen it it is wild um it's it's these like random like uh just people who definitely don't look like they should be in gangs or anything like that and just like asking kids if they want candy or drugs and something and it's about how no they don't want that they want to go roller skating and there's quotes from the kids like i want to be addicted to roller skating not crack prison is full of people that have never roller skated i say no to drugs i say no to math i say no to unplanned pregnancy i say yes to roller skating <laughs> I, mean, I mean local commercials are some of the greatest things ever so I think just 20 minutes of weird local commercials. And let me see, just so I can, if somebody wants to find that, um, uh, here it is. It's it's on uh, this uh, Twitter um, handle, Cursed. It's Cursed Commercials at Cursed Ads, and it the the only thing that's sweet is what with the video. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. All right. Um. So what else we got? Um. I mean, besides that, you could just have – I mean, I'd be good with just random stuff from the Eric Andre show because that's weird and I like weird stuff. Or or just like the flip mode episode of Space Ghost Coast to Coast. But I think that gets a little too uh, me, me first, like Mike Buckmeyer. So uh, overall, what's your opinions on how this is going to go? I cannot get behind local commercials. Local commercials cause me physical pain. I, just cannot, <laughs> I cannot get behind them. There is a voiceover uh, actress – in, in the Raleigh Durham area here who um, she's on everything. Like she even does the, you know, the, here's the weather, here's the, you know, whatever weather where they show that, you know, the station announcement where they show the weather for the, for, for five seconds in between commercials and every single sentence that she utters, she ends it sounding like she's about to burst out laughing. And I, I despise this woman. I've never met her, but, but I, just, I want her to suffer harm. It, it just drives me nuts. So, no, I, I, I will, more local commercials are never anything that I could get behind. I disagree, and I, th- I think you're wrong. I think you just made a horrible take. Um, all right, so 
two two more. I'm, I'm gonna um, but lastly, it's gonna be the most obvious cliche of I want your favorite Super Bowl commercials. Before that, what it, what do you think is the funniest line you've ever heard an athlete say? If um, whether it was in a commercial or a sketch or a movie or anything, because there's one that stands out more than anything, in my opinion. Uh, mine would be Joe Montana from Saturday Night Live, where he uh, he played the geeky roommate, and and his roommate is trying to hook up with a girl, and you can like they each they're they're having just a regular conversation, and then you can hear the voiceover of what they're all thinking, and, and he comes uh, he comes downstairs, and of course the the couple is both they both hate that he's there, and you can read their thoughts, and then he says oh, I'm I'm very happy to meet you, and then his thought over that is I'm very happy to meet her. <laughs> And then oh, I remember the line. That, yeah. The line at the end is he says, I, "I'm gonna go. I'll be up in my room masturbating." <laughs> and I think that's my favorite athlete line ever. It was Joe Montana on Saturday Night Live. Okay, mine. It was hidden at the end of Peyton Manning's. Well, I think he hosted SNL a couple times, but I think it was at the end of his first um, hosting uh, episode with them. I mean, a lot of people they most remember him from throwing the ball at kids in a commercial, mm. but. Um, there was one where with him and uh, was it uh, Kristen Wiig, they were sitting on a porch as a uh, husband and wife, just saying the most like the craziest things you've ever heard, and it just keeps escalating. And, and one of the things was just, I mean, they're sipping coffee, and it's just supposed to be this nice, relaxing kind of either uh, summer evening or late. Or, autumn or spring i don't know but just kind of relaxing sipping coffee just talking and and just saying random things to each other in the most casual voice and he just looks at it he's like i walked around with a piece of sliced ham in my pants for the last couple of days just to have my own secret and he <laughs> takes a sip of coffee and i'm just like what just happened I, and i just i think that's the greatest line i've ever heard an athlete say right there that that takes the gold medal in my opinion <laughs> so give me give, give me your best super bowl commercials the best Super Bowl commercials ever. Um, I don't like anything with animals just because I feel like those are, you know, orchestrated in a lab to, to get high viewer. Ooh, I have one with animals, my number two. So I don't know. <laughs> um, I would say the only exception to that are, are when the Clydesdales were kicking field goals. That would be on my list of favorite commercials. Um, I like the old Bud Bowl commercials where, where the cans were playing against each other, Bud against Bud Light, uh, with Chris Berman voicing over them. I, I like those. And, and I like the uh, the Macintosh ad, the very first kind of big Super Bowl commercial that no one understood and everybody was kind of sitting there going, what the hell just happened when, when that one aired? So I, I think those would be my top three. What was it? I don't have that listed even in my honorable mentions. Uh, maybe I don't remember that. What was that? <laughs> the Macintosh ad? It was, um, it was back in 1984 – and it was um, it was when they unveiled the Mac computer, um, and it was it was a basically I think Ridley Scott directed it, like they hired Ridley Scott to direct it, and Apple spent like their entire budget for the year on this one ad, and they're like we're either going to go out of business or we're going to win the you know the emerging personal computer market, and it was um it was a a takeoff of the book 1984, where it was this totalitarian society and this woman runs in and blows up. She throws, I think a hammer and blows up the screen. And and, and then they have the voiceover saying tomorrow, we're going to introduce the, the Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. And it was the first big, 
like it works so well that that's why everybody now advertises on the Super Bowl because Apple had such success with it. Interesting. To be honest, I really don't care about anything that's not funny. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I think what most would pick is uh, what was that Mean Joe Green throwing the jersey? Was it oh, like yep. Coke or Pepsi or something? But here, all right. So let me quickly run these down. My honorable mentions. I like all Skittles and Doritos commercials. I think those are fantastic. Skittles did some raunchy ones that uh, many of them never aired. And if you don't know, check out this. Um, let's see. And again, the, like I'm, I'm a weirdo. I like stuff that just make it makes no sense or just you, leaves you kind of just with your jaw drop. So while it may be odd for some, I mean stuff like the Audi, the Dober Wawa. Budweiser, Frogs, that's obvious. Mountain Dew Kickstart, the Puppy Monkey Baby, which nobody liked. I, th- I thought was great. Uh, Eat Trade Baby, Reebok Terry Tate, Bud Light, We Go. Uh, Doritos, the Jail and Kyle Slap, the little kid who slapped his, uh, to slap the guy trying to date his mom um, because he tried to grab the kid's Doritos. Uh, the Budweiser was up. Uh, FedEx Castaway Parody and Oreos Library Brawl. So, go to my top three. Whoops, I already gave uh, – number three is just every Dorito Super Bowl commercial because they basically let people make whatever they want, and then they just put whatever they like best. So it's, it doesn't have to pass through, I guess, all the uh, kind of levels. Um, all right, so number two, which go, goes against your animals. But I, honestly, I think, I think you forgot about this. Do you remember the cat herding commercial? Yes, I do remember that one. God, that was perfect. That was perfect. With these, like, rough, rugged cowboys talking about, like, scratches they, they've gotten from cats, from, like, the, all the cat herding they've done. And just these, like, thousands of cats, like, just darting across the desert. It's just, like, the most random thing ever. I thought that was perfect. Then, my number one. Do you remember the Loctite commercial from two years ago? I guess not. What was this? It was the weirdest commercial ever made. First of all, Loctite's a glue, if anyone doesn't know. And, I mean, I don't think they even, like, I, I don't know how they had the money for this. It was just this random, like, reggae dance hall beat. And, like, elderly people, like, and it, like random people dancing. Just 30 seconds of just nonsense. And then that's it. And, and like, it's impossible to explain. Just look up Loctite Super Bowl commercial because... I don't know. It's, it's I, I can't even explain it. Like, you'll understand why I can't explain it if you actually watch it. But that is number one with a bullet, in my, in my opinion. I think TurboTax really dropped the ball last year because they had this weird random dancing bear where, like, it was set up to be a horror – like, before the Super Bowl, it was set up to be a horror movie. And with these people, they were so scared. And then they, and they, hit, they hid in the closet. Then they opened up the closet door – and expected to see um, this evil creature. And it was just this random bear making like little squeaky noises, like a teddy bear just dancing and just making weird sounds and just being like cute. And I wanted that for an entire Super Bowl commercial and they didn't use it. And I was really disappointed. So yeah, I think, I think uh, they dropped the ball. But yeah, that, that, that sums up the very important, very serious Super Bowl time on our pod. And is there anything else you'd like to add about that is Super Bowl related? Oh, you mentioned Doritos, and I do want to add one to my list. I think it was last year, the Morgan Freeman, Missy Elliott uh, Doritos commercial. I think that one yep, was, a, that was good. a great one. So I will add that one. So Okay. So uh, all of that is very Duke relevant, obviously. Um, but, uh, Sean, thanks so much. I mean, Duke obviously, as we said, has 
much tougher games coming up on their schedule. Um, I mean, the only games they've played against top 40 Kempom teams have been the Texas Tech game, the Gonzaga game, Auburn, uh, Syracuse, FSU, and Virginia. And all of those pretty much have been, I mean, I wouldn't say they were ever threatened by Auburn or Texas Tech, but they, they were pretty close. Kentucky, I just, that's the ultimate outlier. I wouldn't even, I don't even care about that game. But, um, yeah, I mean, their games versus quality teams have been close. So ju- they, they've been looking fantastic lately. But I think there's some uh, tougher competition to come once they get past uh, Boston College. Hopefully that won't take out uh, too, too much um, out of them because Virginia, they don't play until uh, until Duke. They, they actually have a little bit off. And weren't they um, – uh, they're missing Jerome, um, Ky, uh, Ty, Ty Jerome, um, against uh, Miami. Yeah, he didn't play yesterday. I didn't hear exactly how serious it was, but yeah, he didn't play yesterday. Yeah, and you could they actually turned the ball over a little bit. So you can see, I mean, yep. they're very dependent on their base guys. So, and then, I mean, Jerome Robinson, Duke's going to catch a break not having to deal with them. But either way, there, there's some tough games coming up. So thanks so much for just going over Duke's uh, Duke overall, what you've seen up close, the most recent games, and what's upcoming, and especially for the Super Bowl takes. I mean, your animal opinion was terrible, and I will never forgive you for that. But but I still appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Sean. And uh, well, uh, where can where can everyone find you on uh, the old Twitter machine? Uh, at Sean Crest on Twitter, and then yeah, North State Journal, uh, and if you, it's not Duke related, but yeah, Carolina Blue Magazine. If you want to see what the other blue team around here is doing, they will they will be uh, running up and down, and not doing it well, but still they they they're actually I will say real quick they're they're start they're looking better. I mean, I'll I will take the responsibility of my preseason. Um, predictions, which, which are which are ridiculous. Anyone who even makes preseason predictions in t- terms of teams, but mine was uh, Virginia, uh, North Carolina one, Virginia two, and Duke three. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully Duke finishes one, but I think any of those three. I mean, they all look they all look very good right now. It could go to anyone. So. Until next time, I'll be back soon with another uh, episode of the Duke Basketball Corner podcast, um, possibly to preview the upcoming Virginia rematch. That should be a great, great, great game, and I will be talking to you guys soon. Bye.